and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I'm your host, Mark Kaler. Uh, today we've got a kind of a special guest for you. Um, some of you may know him from uh, National Geographic's Wicked Tuna uh, or the Outer Banks. Um, we have Captain Dave Marciano with us today. Hi, Dave. How are you? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. How's it going? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for taking the time. Actually, uh, we just got back from a tuna trip. We just landed a, close to a 300-pound tuna. Yep, yep. Nice fish. Beautiful fish. We were going to record out there, but um, as soon as he put the, <laughs> put the pole in the water, we hooked on. So... Um, so here we are. We're uh, sitting on the uh, F.E. Falcon at his uh, slip, and we'll get this started. Dave, uh, let's just go back to where were you born and wh- what first got you into the industry? Um, I was born in Beverly, Mass. Um, and, you know, what, what led me to fishing was funny. Nobody in my family fished before me. Um, I had um, one uncle... When I was a kid, you know, my father didn't even know the basics. He didn't even know how to put a worm on the hook, right? So I had this one uncle, his youngest brother, Uncle, um, it was Joseph. So Uncle Joe was the one family member that took me fishing. Um, and it wasn't much. It was just, you know, with a barber and minnows down the pond catching, you know, bass or whatever, whatnot, maybe some trout. Um, but he kind of planted the seeds. Now, unfortunately, that uh, Uncle Joe... He passed away from leukemia when I was um, 27. Uh, when he was 27, I was about uh, eight, right? Wow. So that was very hard on me. Again, because I was the one uncle. He kind of got me into fishing, used to take me fishing on the weekends, right? So uh, that's the reason why, you know, my son Joseph, who you see in the show, I named him Joseph David after that one uncle who got me into fishing. That's how important it was to me. Now, I started out, you know, on scrubbing bait cups on the party boats, uh, you know, taking passengers out for hire. Uh, and I did that for the first 15 years of my career. You know, well, before high school, I was actually in grade school when I had that first job. And then through high school. Um, and then, you know, after, after high school, a few years after high school, you know, you get married and you have kids. So I gravitated towards the commercial end of fishing, you know, just to make more money and support the family. Mm-hmm. What was your first commercial job then? Commercial fishing? Commercial fishing. Well, my yeah. first commercial fishing job was uh, on a gillnetter. I was uh, on the Sea Force One was the name of the boat, and the captain was Herbie Gleason, old-timer, old-timer. That was my first job gillnetting, and I loved it from day one. Gillnetting has always been one of my favorite fisheries out of all the fisheries I participated in and that's what I wound up when I bought my own boat my first boat the Angelica Joseph she was primarily a gillnetter back at that time um, you know in the early 90s we could make a living pretty much gillnetting year round and that's what I did with that boat um, except I lost that boat uh, and that was the first boat I purchased she was an old wooden uh, Jonesport lobster boat uh, it was a uh, Inch and a half mahogany planks over uh, oak frames. Beautiful boat. But we lost her uh, January 13th, 2003. Uh, 
out fishing. We sank about 22 miles out. We were on our way home with a boatload of pollock and a boatload of nets, and the season was just winding down. And you know, we uh, I believe what happened was we we opened up a butt block, right? So you know, those most of you guys know a, a butt block is where two planks come together on the boat. Now I had just refastened that boat um, two seasons prior. We 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 put 1,500 um, silicon bronze screws in her. Um, you know, three pranks up from the waterline and down. We did the hole underneath, and uh, there was two butt blocks. We replaced all the butt blocks on the boat. And there was two butt blocks that I just couldn't get to without literally, you know, ripping apart the cabin, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was in the area of one of those butt blocks where the water started to come in, and the boat sank in 33 minutes from the time my high water alarms went off and I, you know, verified that, in fact, we were filling up with water. I notified the Coast Guard. Uh, and that was with four electric bilge pumps running. And, you know, because I knew what that what boat was, it was an old wooden boat. Um, and we fished hard. We worked hard. You know, on that boat, I had um, one of those gas-powered pumps, the same pumps that the Coast Guards dropped down, a three-and-a-half-inch um, you know, trash pump, trash right? Pumps, yeah. Gasoline. And I kept that brand new on the on the top bunk, and uh, I had that running too. And with all those pumps running, she still stank in 33 minutes. And that's why I think it was rough out. You know, we had seen worse weather than that, but just things went wrong. And I believe that plank was just pulling further and further back. And mm -hmm. you know, we we tried to save the boat. We had 10,000 pounds of pollock aboard. We threw that over. And then we started to throw the nets over, and we just, we couldn't keep up with it, and she finally slid under. How many men were on board? There was three of us on board. Um, everybody safe? Everybody safe. We're all here to tell the story, so, you know, that's the good part. You know, it's funny, my father, again, we didn't understand fishing. You know, he was like, so, are you going to get out of fishing now? Um, you know, are you done? Right? And, uh, you know, less than 24 hours later, I had bought another boat with the cash I had on hand um, even before the insurance money came through. And it was an old fixer-upper, another old wooden boat. And, you know, it took me two months to get her ready to fish. But, uh, you know, I told my father, right, I says, you know, and he's in the insurance business. I said, look, Dad, if the office building you worked in burned down, God forbid, and there was a fire, and everybody got out safe, okay, would you get out of the insurance industry? Right? And of course not. So, so again, less than 24 hours later, later, I owned another 30-year-old wooden boat. What was her name? Uh, the boat. That name of that boat was Lucky Strike when I bought it. Okay. And we kept that name. I like that name. Yeah. The yeah. the first boat, the boat name of that boat was Angelica Joseph after my two kids. Right. So how long did you run her then? I owned her for about uh, 10 years, about about a decade. She was a good boat. That boat. You know, again, you know, I'm sure some of you, your listeners can identify, you know, when you start out in the business, the biggest piece of the puzzle is getting a boat with good paperwork, good permits, or I believe out, you know, out West Coast, it's getting good quota with the boat, right? Yeah. That's the real value. And so you make the trade-off be between, you know, getting that boat you always wanted and getting a bo boat with good paperwork. Right. And then over time, you graduate to the better boat. Now, out here, is it transferable? You're... Um, the, the, the permits are transferable. It's funny. 
Because in the permit it says non-transferable. But, you know, you get attorneys involved and all that. And, you know, it, it happens all the time, buying and selling your permits. But mm -hmm. it's funny, if you read your NIPS, your, your permit you get from the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service, right on it it says non-transferable. So if you had uh, the, the Falcon now, for example, you've got the quota or the yeah. permits on her. Yeah, we got permits, so we're not dealing with ITQs. So if you were going to go to another vessel, you could take those permits mm. to that vessel. Right. So they're individually owned or vessel owned? They are individually, well, yeah, I mean, the permit is in the boat's name, but it's also in the individual. Like, I could sell this boat and bring that permit to my next boat, or I could sell this boat with the permit. So that boat, that boat was also um, gill netting. Yes, yes, the uh, Angelica Joe. Um, well, with with the with the Lucky Strike, like I knew that boat was going to be kind of a temporary boat, you know, because um, I wanted to buy a boat. I wanted to upgrade, but that got me back in the game within a few months. Right. And then a year later, a year later, I managed to find. The uh, hard merchandise, which is the boat everybody knows so well, sure. and that was a good, you know, it's just a, uh, it's a uh, thirty-four foot Novi boat. It's a Daniel's Head Novi built in Daniel's Head, Nova Scotia. Um, she's thirty-four eight long and thirteen eight wide, so she's a great work boat. She's just slow because it's a work boat, but uh, she's been a great boat. I love that boat, and my son took over that boat now. And then I have this new boat, the Falcon, which is a um, 43-foot Torres, built in 1986. Um, and the Torres was built in uh, Key West, Florida. And, and the Falcon's quick. I mean, today yeah. we were up to 20 knots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today we're up to 20 knots, and we, we were just cruising. I could push it at 20, just about 29 knots if I put it in the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, she's got twin diesels. They're um, um, FPT N67s. They're 550 horsepower each side. Now, these same blocks, it's basically the same block as a Cummins um, or the, the uh, Caterpillar straight sixes, right? It's the same block. It just depends on what company wants to tweak it from there, right? And uh, we can get up to 720 horsepower out of these blocks, right? And they just come down with a computer. It's all electronic these days, right? And program it. And, you know, program it. But out of the box, so to speak... They come with 500 horsepower. I had them tweaking up to 550 because I'm thinking longevity, you know, more than getting that super horsepower for a short period of time. It's, sure. As we all know, and plus fuel consumption is another issue too. I mean, I still, whether even though this boat, I do a lot more charters than I ever did commercial fishing. Um, we still want to be, being fast is nice, but speed costs money. So we want to keep it manageable so it still works for my business model when you got the hard uh the uh, falcon what? no when you when you got the hard merchandise was what? that were you just were you, you were still gill netting with that yeah we when i when i bought the hard merchandise at that time 90 percent of our year was still commercial fishing mostly gill netting some long lining for bottom fish ground fish long lining but uh, the fact of the matter was because of federal regulation, you know, there were times during the year when our income was off because we couldn't do what we used to do. And, you know, it's an, it's an old story in the fishing game. Things change, nothing lasts forever. So we did get back, I, you know, into the um, 
you know, the carrying passengers for hire, right? And that was just a way for those few months in the summer. The weather was nice. I didn't have a fast and fancy boat, but I drew clients by say, saying, you know, look, this is what I do 365 days a year. Sure, you can go on those other boats, but, you know, those guys are part-timers compared to a commercial fisherman like me. Sure. So you want to go on a nice boat ride, and you want to come on this boat and get covered with fish blood. Right. Right. So doing tuna. Yeah. So well, tuna and and or ground fish. Okay. Uh, bottom fish here, caught in the attic. And when did you start uh, the enterprise of commercial fishing tuna? Well, that was always part of, um, as long as I've owned a boat, and even going back to when I was a deckhand, this tuna fishery, it's what's in our backyard. So, like any commercial fisherman, you know, if the fish show up in abundance and you can make a buck doing it, that's what you're going to do. And, you know, so tuna fishing has always been a part of our year, as long as I've been fishing. Um, it's just we use rods and reels in this fishery because that's the law. You can only harvest these fish with a uh, rod and reel or a hand line or a hand-thrown harpoon. We're not allowed to net or long line or, or any of that. Actually, it, uh, it keeps the product that much better, too. Yes, it, you know, it, it does give for a nice product. And it's what made, it's what made this fishery super sustainable, I think. You can't and, get them all. Right, yeah. And, and, and we've watched, because again, during that time, when I entered the fishery, the good old days were gone. And all I did was hear about how good the fishing was before I was here, right? Mm -hmm. So we were kind of at that bottom point. And that was when fisheries regulations in this country in general were really just beginning to kick in. Because, you know, in the past, and it wasn't fishermen, it was society, right? In the past, the attitudes were you never could catch all the fish in the sea. You know, during that same time period, let's not forget cities like Boston, New York, they would pile their trash on barges, you know, the same stuff you put out the curb now. They would pile it on barges and bring it out three miles and dump it at sea, pull out the bottom from the barge, right? That was common practice back then. Now as a society, of course, we've come light years from that. And we know we can still be have fishing, but we have to do it in a sustainable manner. And that's whether we're talking tuna or all those fish out that you guys catch out on the West Coast. Now, you said that back when you started, it was still kind of right. The heyday had been gone. You've been yeah. hearing stories. Do you think that your son has the same sense of that, that it's less now than it was when you started? Oh, no, no, no. Joe's, my son Joe, and, and that's it. I've watched the fishery get nothing nothing but improve okay. during my career. And that's not only for tuna, for all the species we target here in New England. Um, so I think that's a great thing. And I mean, let's face it. The United States, as leaders in the world, when it comes to successful fisheries management stories, whether we're on the East Coast or the West Coast, you know, we've done a pretty good job overall in this country. And I think even that's even borne out with the statistics, not just Dave's opinion as a fisherman. I think, you know, NIPS just published that right now, currently this year, they published it that, you know, 91% of the species, the commercially viable species in this country, uh, overfishing is not occurring, right? That's a good thing. That means we're doing it right in this country. We're fishing sustainably on whatever coast you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fishing game nationwide does a really, really good job. Right. No, and it, and it was a hard 
transfer. You know what I mean? I remember, it was funny, you know, the guys who taught me, we used to know laws at all. So as soon as some laws started to come in place, you know, it was hard on those guys, right? Now, at least I was at a point, you know, my generation, I guess you could say, we never knew fishing without some sort of regulation. Mm -hmm. So although there's been times where we've disagreed, and let's face it, we're dealing with the federal government managing and making regulations, there are times when we're not absolutely thrilled with how things are going. But overall, we all understand it's for our benefit, and, and we, we, you know, fully support what's going on. Because I see kind of a better future for my son than I was, than, than it was for me at his age. Now, has, has Joe had any kids yet? No, okay. no. Okay, so we're, but you do expect another generation to be coming on here. Oh, absolutely. And again, like, you know, I was the first generation of my family to fish. My father didn't fish, so... Joe's really that second generation, and I certainly expect there'll be others. Do you? Does that make you proud? Absolutely. You know, because we, remember, I've come from a tough time. There was, you know, when I started, there was, you know, probably about 3,600, I think. I, I used to know the stats really good. I was always very active in the council process and the fisheries management process. Now, when I was a young guy in the fishery, there was about 3,700 active permits um, in the commercial fisheries for ground fish here in New England. Right now, we're down to about 80, right? Um, and I'm not thrilled with that, and that's why I walked away in disgust with the fisheries management uh, process here in New England. I don't believe, although we have fully rebuilt fisheries, we went and put all the fishermen out of business. Yeah, less boats, less crew, less... Right, there's just, there's nothing anymore. We lost the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So even though we have an abundance of fish right now, prices are terrible because all, you know, there's, it's a fine line, fisheries management, between, you know, uh, restricting and rebuilding. And, you know, you have to walk that fine line. You, if you lose the infrastructure in the boats like we did, at one level, it's what was the point of bringing the fish back? You know, and I say that... Uh, sarcastically, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, of course we wanted to bring the fish back. But if if you don't do it right and you lose the industry, you know, at, at some level, you have to ask yourself, well, what was the point of that exercise? Yeah, I uh, we were driving along the coast here the other day, yesterday, I think, um, and came across a monument for, for Cape Ann, the first, um, the first commercial fishing port. Or, yeah, that's yeah it's right the now. oldest fishing port. Gloucester has over a 400-year history of fishing here. Yeah. You know, Gloucester, um, you know, was, what you know, Gloucester, New Bedford, you had the whaling, Gloucester, you had this salt cod, that, you know, literally those were some of the fundamental building blocks that helped build this country. Sure. You know, think about it. Without that salt, salt cod, salt cod at the time, back in the day when this country was just starting was a commodity that was in demand worldwide, not only for the early colonies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody, yeah. You know what I mean? It, was, it wasn't like there was thousands of cattle here. Right, right, right. There was there was that salt cod, and, you know, that had value around the world, you know. That, that ultimately led to, I mean, so many things. Not only, um, you know, food for those early colonies, it became a commodity that when you think about things like East India trading, 
you know, down in Salem in the spice trade and, and all that, you know, when they went to get those spices, a lot of what they brought, you know, as well as tobacco and other things were salt cod from the, from the colonies, you know, yeah. that went around the world. Building blocks. Building right, blocks. right. It was it was part of what helped build this country, without a doubt. So now, as of today, you've been commercial fishing for how many years? I've been commercial fishing for, what, 25, well, 30 years now at least. Okay. Yeah, maybe 30 more. 30 years. And yeah. in, in that time, I can imagine that the, the first vessel uh, was tough to lose. Yeah. Would that have been one of your scariest moments at sea, or have you had... Yeah, yeah, you know, without a doubt. I mean, that was... Because again, I I described it. Um, you know, it's like a car accident, right? You know it happens. You're aware of boat sinking in the fishing industry, but you never think it's going to be you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then all of a sudden, just like a car accident, that one time it's your turn, and uh, you know, again, it was a little surreal, right? Because I'll never forget that moment. Um, you know, when I when I realized, you know, at, at this point, the boat was, at one point, you know, the boat was so full of water that the only thing keeping her afloat was that forward momentum. And we had the hatches up, we could see the engine room, and you could see that water getting close to the breather on the on the engine, you know, and, and we all know what's going to happen. Once, once, once the water makes it up to the air breather, it's game over, that engine's going to stop, and the boat was completely full. So, you know, I sent the crew in the life raft, now, right away, too, like after this happened, we and the boats heard we had taken on water, within minutes, within 20 minutes, we had another commercial fishing boat at least riding alongside. So he couldn't do nothing, but like we all knew, as long as we didn't do anything stupid and get stuck in the cabin or, or, or stuck in the ropes or something, even if we hit the water, the other fisherman was going to be right there to pick us up. So, But we knew we could see what was going to happen. So, you know, we deployed the life raft. We were towing it from the mast. I slowed down just enough to let the guys get overboard. I cut the raft free, and they were pulling themselves into the life raft. And uh, the boat kept going forward at that point. But, you know, I knew once the engine stopped, she was going to settle right in. And uh, that's, ex in fact, what happened. You know, I made it about another mile further. The other boat was picking up the life raft with the crew in it. They were about a mile behind us, and then boom. The engine stopped and, you know, literally it went from, you know, in that boat we had a much smaller cabin than the Falcon here, but I went from, once that engine stopped and I just notified the Coast Guard, I said, we, you know, we're going overboard, we're going in. They were en route at this point. Um, and it in the three steps it took me to leave the wheel and head out the back of the cabin. By the time I got to the back of the cabin, I was... You know, doing the breaststroke in my survival suit, right? Just to get clear of the boat. And uh, it was, you know, it wasn't outrageously rough that day, but it was, you know, like today. It was, you know, bumpy, rolly, but, you know, not like life-threatening, oh, my God, we shouldn't be here rough, you know what I mean? Just a tough day at the office for guys like us. And there's thousands of guys out there who do it every day. And, um, but it was surreal because now... You know, that other boat's about a mile behind me. I knew they were coming for me. I'm in my exposure suit. Mind you, now it's January 13th, 2003. It was about 5 degrees out when we left the dock that morning in the dock. So it was cold. And But those exposure suits, you know, those guys, you know them. 
you know, they're pretty good. They, you know, you get it zipped up right, it's got nothing but your face exposed, yeah. right? Yeah. Except I had my hood down because I was talking with the Coast Guard, right? Did you fill up? Yeah, so we filled up. and But, you know, again, now adrenaline kicks in. But now the boat's gone. And we went from all that noise and all that chaos to it's just silent, except the wind. Right? And the boat sank now, and she's just sitting there. And all of a sudden, I realized, boy, is my fucking head cold. Right? Because, it was again, it was below freezing. So, uh... I got buckled up good and, and everything, from, but that, my suit was full of water. But, you know, again, it's an exposure suit. You know, it's going to warm up. Hmm. And, uh, but that was like surreal. You know, I even said it in an interview with the local paper at the time, you know, because the boat sank, right? And she slid out of sight. And it was rough out now, six to eight foot seas. And it was an old wooden boat, right? And I had some, um, you know, my poly balls lashed to the rigging. That's where. You know, we store that shit like a million other guys right. do, right? So, the boat slides under. And on that boat, on all my boats, I had the, the American flag up there in the mast, right? Way up high. The boat slides under. And at, at some point, you know, the, the, everything disappears and it's all quiet, right? And then the cabin ripped off because of all the poly balls we had in the mast, right? And she ripped off. And all of a sudden, just poking up out of the water... I see the top of the mast coming again, right? And that flag just slowly raises out, right? It's stretched tight one more time because we're blowing 25, 30 knots, right? And that flag went from, you know, just all sunken wet, stretched out that one last time straight out. And then all the cable stays and everything caught up. And then she slowly just slid under again that final wow. time. Wow. It was almost like she was waving to me. Nice. How how long did it take for the guys to get you? Um, not long. You know, you know, I, I was in the water maybe ten or fifteen minutes. You know. Let's let's touch on that uh, that maritime brotherhood. So <coughs> from your first mayday, yeah, was an immediate response, and that's yeah. that's the code. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would do that even to the guy you hate. You know, and there's very few people I hate, but you know how it is. Even the guy you dislike. You know what I mean? If they have trouble, we're gonna make sure they get home. First and foremost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, that, and that's the same, every I think, everywhere. Yep. So um, what about some good times? Obviously, you've had a lot of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, one of the, you know, there's been so many, but, you know, like in that boat that I lost, you know, the first time we really hit the fish and we were the last boat on the fish, you know, we were getting haddock. It was haddock. I got pictures of that boat. We were hauling the nets that day, and it was rough out. And literally, you couldn't put another haddock on the boat. I mean, we were putting them where we stand. We were putting them in the cabin. We were putting them everywhere. And, you know, a big wave would come, and, if, and you know, uh, 500 pounds would just slide off the top of the pile. There's just no more place to put fish, you know what I mean? And, yeah. like, those were some of the great times. Um you know, as well as at other times, like in the tuna fishery, you know, when when um, my son Joe was with me, he was about nine when we caught, I caught the biggest fish of my life, and uh, it was a 1,200-pound tuna fish. You know, the cool part is, you know, we're out there, we're marking that fish, we couldn't get him to bite, we'd seen him for hours on the screen, and then Joe finally jigged up a little live bait, right, because... We couldn't jig up no bait because that fish was right under the boat. It scared all the bait. And uh, he finally gets one live bait. 
after all our dead baits, we just couldn't hook this fish, you know, and we banged that on the hook, and me and the guys, you know, it was on, on that boat, it was on the hard merch, and so we all had to run up forward to watch the machine and watch the bait settle in, and, you know, Jay, I'll never forget the look on Jay, Joe, and I, right, we're up watching the machine, and that fish comes back, and we just, like, it was slow motion and all, I had, you know, we literally on the machine, we saw it eat the bait, we all turn our heads and the rod folds right over and a few hours later we get what turned out to be the biggest fish of my life. It was a twelve hundred pound giant bluefin tuna. But the cool part, it was that was the biggest fish of my son's life too. Right? And like that's a story he was nine years old, you know, Jay was with us, and that's a story that we're gonna tell, you know, until we both go to the grave, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's one that he'll probably tell his kids. What an amazing moment. Yeah. For for both of you, really. Yeah. No, and like he was little at the time too. Like he was so small, we used to had to. You know how you guys were fighting the fish on the rod today? We used to have to flip over a fish tote for him at the time, so he could stand up and reach the reel, and he'd be standing on top of a fish tote. So he helped fight it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. A trial by fire, just like you guys, right? We give you the basics, basic instructions, and then we set you guys to work on the rod, and then all we ask is just let us close the deal right at the end. Because that's where experience helps. And you guys will see that picture posted here at some point. Okay, so um, 1,200 pounds. I, I can't even imagine that. The one we caught today was maybe close to 300, 275. Yeah, 300 pounds, I figure, yeah. And uh, so 1,200, that just had to, would that have even fit? <laughs> you know what I mean? It yeah, well, to... that would have been tricky. On this boat, I haven't tested that door to see how big it is, right? Yeah. But like on the hard merch, you know, if people have watched the show, we pull them up over the rail. And that was the one fish on that boat. I, I was never able to get it over the rail. It was too long. So we actually, I took the stern out. That's an open lobster boat, right? So we took the rod holders off the stern. We had to unbolt those. And we used the block and tackle. And we just got his head up on the stern. And then all three of us, you know, kind of just rolled his tail on the boat. And then we put the stern back in. Boy. Oh. You got any pictures of this fish? No, I don't because look at the, that was before cell phones, right? Right. And at the time, back in the day, like that was the uh, that was a curse of death, you know, for the crew to bring a camera. You know what I mean? Like you didn't bring a camera, that was bad luck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where do you see yourself going from from where you're at now? What do you see in the future? Oh, in the future, I see us having a fantastic charter business, right? And um. What's cool for me, the fringe benefits, right, from being a part of the show. You know, I got into fishing because of that passion for fishing. Again, with my Uncle Joe fishing with a bobber and minnow, right? And I used to dream, we used to read the saltwater sportsmen and all that sport fishing and bill fishing. And, you know, when I was a kid, that was my dream to do that someday. You know, now because of the show, I get invitations to do that all over the place, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, um... Especially November 4th, uh, my wife and I are going to Cabo, Mexico to uh, put satellite tags in Stripe Marlin. And, you know, the trade-off is, is for a whole week, we're going to be going on those fancy sport boats. And you're going to have you know, to catch them. Right, right. And we're going to, you know, catch them. But, you know, it's going to be sport fishing. You know what I mean? And, and like, so it's, it's kind of coming full circle for me. You know, again, at, at late in my career. I won't say the end of my career, but late in my career. Now I'm getting all these opportunities. We were in Australia this year in June. Uh, you know, again, because of the show, 
the company that gave me the winches for the boat, right? They, and plus, you know, that's a trade-off. They give you free stuff because obviously they want to see it on the show, right? Yeah, I'm stupid. jealous of your Simrad equipment. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Simrad's been a great sponsor to work with. And, you know, you team up with these companies. And they had my wife and I were in Australia with the winch company, Lone Star Marine, for these winches we use for our anchors. And um, best in the business, by the way, Lone Star Marine. You can look them up. <laughs> but uh, so we, well, wife and I wound up in uh, Australia for three weeks on the Gold Coast to do a boat show down there. So the fisherman part of me, right, was just the way my schedule worked. I had already had a fundraiser in San Diego planned in June. So we went to Australia and I was fishing southern bluefins in the southern ocean. And then a week later, I was fishing in the Pacific Ocean for Pacific bluefin at the fundraiser. And then a week after that, I was fishing back here in Massachusetts for giant Atlantic bluefin. Did you try? So you in try three weeks, there? in three weeks, I fished in three oceans on the planet. Very awesome. You know, so like that's been the fringe benefits of being by the show. Is there a species you haven't caught yet that's still on your bucket list? Yeah, I would have to say this. I've been asked that before. I want to go to Australia and catch those black marlin. Now, when we went, it was the wrong time of year. But mm -hmm. look, those are the big ones. But yeah. A good second place will be a blue mallet if I get a chance to do that. But that's well, aren't just there cool some shit. blues down in Cabo? There should be, but we're going at the wrong time of year. Okay. In November when we go, striped mallet are very abundant. And with the company I'm going with, Gray's Taxidermy, and they have a tagging program, Gray's Tagging, you know, the interest, the focus of this this fishing trip to get these satellite tags and striped mallet. Because that's what they want to learn more about at the time. Okay. So with all the experience the show has brought you, that's great. And uh, all the years of commercial fishing in the, in, well, we'll just call it the private sector when you weren't on TV. What advice would you have for young guys? Because we, at least on the West Coast, we're losing a lot of our young guys. Yeah. What advice would you have for young guys that are trying to get in the fishing industry? Uh, look, I, I, I get emails like that all the time. People see the show and they want to get in and... Look, it's a tough business now. The regulatory process has made it very hard um, to make, make a living fishing. And I think it's one of the tragedies, although there's good points in bringing the fish back, one of the negatives is, look, when I started fishing, you went fishing because you needed to make a living. But basically, these days, to get into fishing, if you've got enough money to get into fishing, you don't need to fish for a living. I think that's a definite negative. Because, again, who, who's got a million dollars to get into any game and start playing, right? right. If you got a million dollars... Look, if I had a million dollars when I thought about getting into the fishing industry, I certainly would have fucking... I certainly would have gotten it, spent it on getting into the fishing industry. I would have used that million dollars for a lot of other things, you know what I mean? Yeah. And nowadays, if, again, we see it all the time. The people getting into fishing are either just big corporations using it for a write-off or a bunch of guys who made their million somewhere else and are like, oh, I always wanted to be a fisherman. There's very few guys who get in like I did who just had a desire to fish and work their way up from scrubbing bait cups to running somebody else's boat to finally buying their own boat. It's just not possible anymore. Yeah, it's still a dream for a lot of guys. Yeah. It's still a dream. Uh, yeah, and I'm not saying don't do it, but... It's going to be a lot harder than you think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not the fishing part. I know there's a lot of great fishermen out there. It's just 
the way it's gone to such a financial stake, I mean, it's a huge gamble. And again, I can look, if I had the money that it took to get into fishing these days, I, I, I can think of a lot of better things to do with that million. Okay, so from where you're at right now, obviously fishing's given you a lot. Yeah. Would you, would you change anything? No, no, I mean, we're, we're fortunate. Look, I made a living fishing, uh, but I never made a killing. And there was times where I wish I made different decisions, you know. I won't lie. But all in all, what it does show is um, if, you're, if you're good at something and you get a passion at it, stick with it, whether it's fishing or something else. And, uh, you know, because look what happened to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, in the long run, it came out good, you know, and, you know, the, the show has been a great opportunity for me, and I've said it in other interviews, right, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm getting a little bit ahead in the rat race, so we made a living fishing, and we always hit, you know, look, we had a modest house, you know, and we've, I've said it, we never had everything we wanted, but somehow fishing provided everything we needed, which is okay, right? But now we're finally getting a little bit ahead of the rat race, and, you know, I've started retirement planning, and for any fishermen out there listening, you know, that's a dream that not many of us had. That's what I'm doing with my TV money, right? Mm -hmm. My kids, um, you know, my wife and I have a high school diploma, and we barely got that, and I mean just barely. I was, you know, I was expelled from three different high schools, right? And my old man was going to ship me off to military school. And I begged him for one last chance. But we'll save that story for the book, right? So to see both my kids, and we got, you know, our youngest one is a few years away. But, you know, my son and my daughter, Angelica and Joseph, they've got their degrees. And they've used that extra TV money to pay off that student loan. And now they're starting to plan for their retirement. That's a good feeling. Yeah. And that's what it's meant for our family, you know. For other guys, it's meant other things. But we'll take that, you know. I have a retirement portfolio. Those are words I never thought I would utter as a fisherman. Right. Right. You know, and let's be honest. For me, you know, I, I get it. I'm not Brad Pitt. Retirement doesn't mean a mansion in L.A., right? But if I could get to the point where I could fish when I want to, oh, not because I have to, I'll call that retirement. That'd be a good one. You, you, you do enjoy going out on these charters though oh absolutely look it's great seeing you guys that has been whether the show or the charter business right it's, it has been one of those things that have reminded me how fortunate i am to be a fisherman because let's face it i'll admit i kind of took that for granted on one level right you know and the other fishermen out there like me know you know we, we are fortunate you know i've seen thousands of spectacular sunrises and sunsets out fishing but at one level, it's work, right? But with the show and with charter clients, when I see people like today get to bring people out to come and experience what we do and see the smiles on their faces, you know, and, and, and see them experience, again, that thing that we kind of took for granted. And I get that a lot of comments from people who watch the show. You know, they said, thank you for letting us into your world and letting us see what you get to see every day. Well, I came on here at Tuna Virgin. Right. That's my first one today. So, and to see them up close, they're a <laughs> yeah, much, yeah, 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 much yeah. more graceful, beautiful, powerful creature yeah. than you can imagine. 
Right, and that's why, you know, even when we're doing this fishery, the commercial fishery is closed and we're doing some tagging, releasing, it is quite a spectacular thing. And I never have clients complain when they have to release a fish because you've seen it, right? Yeah. Generally, it's always the biggest fish they've caught in their life, and it is a pretty beautiful thing to witness. Yeah, yeah. but not only was this my first tuna, but it was the biggest fish that I've been a part of. Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm so, glad we made it happen. Okay, Dave, uh, I thank you again for taking the time to sit down with us and talk talk about this today. I've had, I had a really great day. Awesome, awesome. No, I'm glad it, it all came together uh, like it did, you know, because at first we talked about just doing an interview sometime when I get in from fishing for this time that you were going to be around. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it worked out right at the end here. We, we had an available date and you grabbed some of your buddies and we went out and caught a fish. I, I can't think of a way to, uh, you know, have an interview like this happen any better. No, no, it was <laughs> just a, it's a, what do you call it, a caveat at the end or what do you call it? Yeah. Just a, a bonus. Yeah. So anyway, okay, uh, so guys, it's once again, Galley Stories. And if that's all you got, Dave, that's all that I got. Uh, yeah, I just will. One shout out for um, if anybody's interested in doing a charter or checking out anything else about the boat more in detail, you can visit our website at FV, as in Fishing Vessel, hardmerchandise.com. Um, and you can see more about us or, of course, order any of your shirts, hats, or bobbleheads or book a trip. And uh, also follow him on uh, yeah. On oh, Instagram. yeah, yeah. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Captain Marciano. Or we have the boat accounts, FV uh, Falcon and FV Hard Merchandise, which is my son's boat now. Also follow uh, Galley Stories, guys, on uh, Instagram and Facebook. And uh, one more thing. If somebody wanted, some of my listeners that yeah. may, may be more deadliest catch guys. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Because we're mainly on the West Coast. Yeah. If they wanted to start binge watching, we could, uh, we could tune it. Would they do that at National Geographic or what? National Geographic Channel um, is our channel, and you can find it online, um, different places. But I don't know much about that. But we are on the National Geographic Channel. Excellent, excellent. Okay, guys, so start binge watching that Wicked Tuna. And if you have any questions for Captain Dave, feel free to write in to Mark at Galley Stories or galleystories at gmail.com. We'll forward them on to him, and I'm sure he'd be gracious enough. To Absolutely. Answer. Thank you again. All right. We'll see you guys later. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.